At Athletic Brewing Company, our innovative process allows us to brew great-tasting craft beer without the alcohol. From IPAs to stouts to golden ales and more, our beers are made with organic grains and start at only 50 calories. Now you can enjoy the refreshing taste of great beer anytime, anywhere. No matter your motivation, if you want to keep a clear head and drink healthier, Athletic Beers are here for you. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. Back we are with the Fastest Known Podcast, practicing physical distancing and social intimacy as always. I'm currently in northern Michigan while my guest is across the country in Seattle. But boy, this guy gets around, let me tell you. Well, he's going to tell you for himself, but first let's welcome Eric Gilbertson. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wow. Uh, the, the title of this podcast is 432,500 feet of vertical gain. That's that's one route. <laughs> that's one route that you just added on the fastest known time website. So, Eric, what route did you just do that has 432,500 feet of elevation gain? Uh, so I'm calling it the Rocky Mountain Slam. So it's climb all the Colorado 14ers and then the Wyoming 13ers and the Montana 12ers. And that, that wow. adds up to the, the route I took adds up to that, that amount of elevation gain. That's, that's a chunk. That's a chunk. So very few people, I mean, Peter and I actually mapped out the Wyoming 13ers a few years ago. At the time, no one had done them in the season. It was possible no one had done them lifetime. This just now came on. And then, of course, the Montana 12s, those are very recent as well. So the Colorado 14ers, those are kind of a FKT classic. People have been doing those for literally decades, but not the Wyoming 13ers, which are technical. And the uh, Montana 12s, which are distant, require some bushwhacking. So you put together some massive high points. I mean, what made you decide to do this? I guess I'm pretty motivated by climbing a lot of mountains. So I'm definitely a peak bagger. And I hadn't really done much hiking in Colorado, Wyoming, or Montana. And so I usually spend my summers uh, trying to climb mountains all around the world. But that didn't really make sense this summer. So I figured this is a great summer to visit those three states that I hadn't really done much hiking in. And I'm Wyoming was my main, the main one I wanted to target because it's the has some of the most remote mountains in the lower 48. I mean, Washington, where I live, has really remote mountains, but I'm, I'm, I hike here on the weekends a lot of time. I wanted to get somewhere new. So Wyoming was my main, main, main goal, climb a bunch of mountains in Wyoming. Had you ever climbed mountains in Wyoming? So I'd climbed Gannett Peak and Grand Teton before. And that was, so Gannett Peak, I was working on climbing the U.S. state high points, a couple of years ago. So I backpacked into Titcomb Basin and I remember those mountains look really fun all around the basin. I was just doing the one of them, Gannett. So I really wanted to go back and climb all those other fun peaks too. Well, Eric, I'm a little flummoxed here because everything you say is a massive understatement. <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> pardon me, I'm just trying to have the listeners 
comprehend this because uh, just to repeat, I don't think anyone had ever done the Wyoming. I know no one had ever done the Wyoming 13ers in an entire year. And you just put it together. And I think it was 13 days and then did the Colorado four. Well, actually you didn't even, you didn't, you did do the Colorado 14ers, but actually you did the Colorado highest hundred at the same time. And then Montana. So when you say you like to climb mountains, um, hmm, yeah, yeah, I'm probably more, I'm probably on the more extreme end of the end of the spectrum on those kind of those kind of mountains. Well, okay. Um, so everybody, listeners, everything you hear Eric say, multiply it by three. Otherwise, you're not gonna we're not gonna understand this very well. So you have your own website. Actually, I think it says you and your brother, and it's called Country High Points, which will be in the written show notes. People can certainly look this up, but it says, we're trying to climb the highest mountain in every country on earth. Wow. So you've got 122 Country High Points so far. Yeah. (laughs) And by the way, you're 34 years old, so you... (laughs) You got a good crack at this. Yeah, my, my twin brother Matthew and I, that's our, our big goal is to climb country high points. So we started with, um, we kind of got into peak bagging in school in New England, uh, in New Hampshire. That's the, a, a thing everyone does, climb the, all the 4,000 footers in New Hampshire. So that kind of got us hooked. And then- uh, A quick note, just this is totally true, but does school mean high school or college or what does that mean? Oh, um, we were at MIT for undergrad and grad school. So we were there for like 10 years. So a lot of time to climb a bunch of mountains in New England. Gotcha. So you, you've done the 4,000 footers. And then the New England 100 highest. And then we we kind of wanted to visit more of the U.S. Our dad was really into big road trips growing up. So we're used to like trying to visit every state. So then we decided let's climb the highest mountain in every state. So that we were doing that mostly during grad school. We would get like try to squeeze in weekend trips and maybe get a couple weeks to do bigger mountains like Denali and Alaska. So the next step after state high points, we thought, okay, let's keep going bigger and do all the country high points. And so that one, it's hard enough that it's probably going to take most of our lives. And so it's like a, a goal we can always be working on. <laughs> Eric, again, I'm a little lost for words here. So graduate program at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and peak bagging across the country at the same time. So are you one of these people who do not need to sleep at night? <laughs> um, this recent summer is maybe where I started pushing it more without sleeping, but we would try to be, it's a really good motivation in school to like be extremely efficient with your work. So you can carve out a chunk of time to go climb mountains. And so I think it was, it's kind of like mountains helped work and then the worked, and then that got us to do our work more efficiently. So then we could get out and climb mountains. So we did take a, we did take a break between masters and PhD for a summer. We did a bike tour. Uh, we started on the Northern tip of Alaska and biked down to, Uh, to Montana. And so we did some state high points at the end of that bike tour. So, so there was uh, a bigger chunk of time we could work with. 
to, to do these mountains. <laughs> so obviously you do not fit into the dirt bag climber category with uh, graduate degrees and sounds like possibly a PhD. And you are currently are a professor at Seattle University. Is that right? Uh, yeah, I teach mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. We okay. try to be dirtbag as possible to try to stretch the money because like doing country high points could get expensive if you're not careful. But then we do all these tricks like you sign up for a credit card, you get a sign-on bonus, then you can get free flights. When we're in a country, we might just – like one one trip I did, a it's like a six-week bicycle tour in Eastern Europe. I figured I saved money there because the food is cheaper than in the U.S. and Eastern Europe. And I didn't have to pay to sleep because I was just – sleeping in the woods on my bike. And so there's not really much, it's not really that expensive if you're really careful being dirtbag. Okay. That's true. I've often thought that same thing myself. People just scrapping for a living here in middle-class America. While if you just quit the whole thing and traveled around the world, it actually is cheaper. It's, it's sort of surprising how that works out. Yeah, I think uh, the bike touring part is uh, a big money saver. You don't really pay for anything if you can carve out a chunk of time to, to, to do that. Wow. So speaking of time, as a professor of mechanical engineering, um, how much time do you have? Uh, so I don't teach in the summer. So that's the time to, to go climb a bunch of mountains. So by summer, how, what is what? time frame is that uh so it's usually mid-june to mid-september and it's shifted a little bit this year because of covid but so i I can that's a good time to go climb a bunch of mountains okay so you got three months to get it done yeah as long as you're in the northern hemisphere yeah and then i guess christmas break for a southern hemisphere like i've done some trips to new zealand and Argentina doing like Mount Cook in New Zealand and Aconcagua and Ojos del Salado in Chile in the Southern Hemisphere. On Christmas break. Yeah. Well, Eric, I'll, I'm, I'm feeling like a real slacker here. So pardon me as I try to get orientated. Um, 122 country high points. So how many does that leave? So there's 193 UN members. And then two non, non-member observer states, so 195. And then if you count Antarctica, then 196. So that gets all land on Earth would be part of some country. So some, so people debate how many countries there are. So something like that. Right. So you have 74 to go. Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, I'm noticing on your map which again, listeners can find by going to the written show notes. Looks like Chomolungma Everest has not been climbed yet. No, that one. Well, the climbing season was shut down this year. That one I'll probably have to wait. I'll probably have to save some money. They can't really dirtbag Everest anymore. Kind of, It's kind of expensive. <laughs> it is. It is. Uh, I, uh, Goran, oh, the Swedish guy who died tragically, come to think of it, rock climbing in Washington State. Um, can't, was it Sepp Shep who bicycled from Sweden oh, yeah. to base camp? So he, he did dirtbag Everest, 
but they don't really want you to do it anymore. Now you have to pay to play. Yeah, there are plenty of other mountains. So I was that was the original plan this summer to go to um, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, and climb those country high points. And so those are not not expensive. Nothing compared to Everest. Right. Wow. Okay. So let's get back to the Rocky Mountain Slam. Dang. Phew. So Wyoming, these are these are kind of tough. They're they're pretty rugged. Uh, Colorado, of course, by far the highest state by an average elevation in the United States, by a wide margin, actually, including Alaska. And we have, of course, 54 to 58, 14,000 foot peaks compared to 13 in California, one in Washington, none in Wyoming. But a lot of the 14ers in Colorado are giant tailless piles. Pardon me for saying that. Well, Wyoming, eh, not so much. Uh, you know, Gannett and Grand, those aren't giant tailless piles. Those are pretty stiff, and all the ones around them are fairly stiff as well. Yeah, Colorado, I was kind of surprised that a lot of peaks have trails that go basically all the way up. And so each state had kind of a different flavor. So Colorado was a lot of hiking, and you get a lot of elevation gain in Colorado. But Wyoming, once you do, once you get the long approach done, the peaks are mostly uh, third and fourth class, and there's uh, small glaciers around them. And then uh, there's like four of them that are uh, short bits of low fifth class. So what Montana, though, is a lot of big, uh, you'll get like a, the rock piles up to a big flat plateau. And so it's mostly like class two in Montana. So all the states are very, very unique, it seems. But in Montana, you have to get to the base. Yeah, there aren't really many trails in Montana. So it's mostly mostly off-trail travel. So were you doing just a stupendous amount of research in the off-season? I wish I, I wish I could have. I didn't end up doing as much as I hoped. So the, I had to cancel my earlier trip in early June, the international trip, because that doesn't make sense. And with COVID. So I want to do something domestic. So I kind of had about a week to figure it out after canceling the other one. So I kind of did big picture planning and then uh, focused on the details once I got to the States, uh, once I got to where I wanted to go. So I kind of, for Colorado, I, I had enough time to pick an order of peaks I wanted to do. I was originally just going to do the 14ers, but then the day before I was driving down, my friend, my friend, climb partner, Matt Lemke, he kind of convinced me the Centennials would be fun too. So I figured I could probably, I figured out a way I think I could, thought I could squeeze those in. So I figured. Just throw in another 42 peaks. Yeah. The, the Centennial ones though, they sound, they are a little bit different than the 14ers because a couple of them are technical and then a couple of them are more remote. So they sounded pretty fun. And a lot of them are near 14ers. So it's just like a side trip to go tag a centennial. So it, it seemed like it would make the trip more fun. So I would, so I planned a good order for the peaks in Colorado, but the details, it's just too many peaks to go to really detailed planning. So what I would do would usually be, I climb one peak I get cell service on the top and I would maybe pull up some, I would go to like 
some website to try to find a trip report for the peaks for the next day. Or I would use uh, Jerry Roach's uh, guidebook for the 14ers to figure out the next day. So I was kind of playing out big picture, but the details maybe one or two days in advance for, for Colorado. Well, as a guy who's obviously very, very good at this, what tips in terms of navigation would you like to give us all? So Jerry Roach's guidebook is, he's, he's got a bunch of guidebooks too, by the way, but the, the Colorado 14ers is the one you're referring to. And you'd pull things up. I mean, are you using um, Gaia? You didn't, you don't plan on Cal Topo or using mountain project, uh, trail running project? Oh, what I, what, what's, what's the technique here? Oh, so what I use is the peakbagger.com app. So you ah. can download all the quads from the U.S. For, for any peak that you want. It'll give you the quads in some sort of radius around the peak. And then if anyone has done the peak and uploaded a GPS track, then that'll just show up on the app. So that's pretty helpful. But the tricky part was usually combining combining as many peaks as possible in the day. So I was surprised that there's not as much, it seems like there's not as much interest in doing centennials all in one push as 14 years in one push. So it's not necessarily obvious what's the best way to combine them. So a lot of times I would think looking at the topo map, Oh, I can just go along this Ridge, like Huron to North Apostle. I thought, okay, that'll work. It's, it looks pretty good on the topo map. Then I get there and it, it looks more like a fifth class, non-trivial ridge. And so I made a lot of mistakes like that with, with planning. So, so I'd have to go so around. Peakbeggar.com is your app of choice. But like you say, that's going to give you one route from the bottom to the top, but it doesn't give you link routes. So are you? what map are you looking at? Are you just looking at Google Maps or what are you doing? Uh, so combi- for combining 14ers, Jerry Roach, does a has really good maps for how you combine those but then to tag on the centennials and the 14ers i'm usually just looking at the quads and kind of figuring it out on my own or maybe i can find a trip report from someone uh mostly just looking at the quads though so there's one oh go ahead so you're looking at the quads on your phone on peakbagger.com yeah that was my main resource so there was the one There was one, um, the one I had to think the most about was probably how to include Jagged with the other 14ers in the San Juans, because it's most common for people to do the 14ers in one go and then later do Jagged by itself. And it's not necessarily obvious what's the best way to combine them. So I kind of just thought of a route and hope that it worked because I couldn't find anyone who had done it that way before. So I found this call between, I think it was Sunlight and Wyndham, and I crossed the divide to this other basin and managed to get Jagged as a side trip with the rest of the San Juans. So I think that's probably one of the best ways to do it in hindsight. And so some people spend years, certainly months, planning their speed attempts, their FKTs, you were almost doing this on the fly, and besides doing the Rocky Mountain Slam, you got the FKT for Colorado's highest hundred and the Wyoming Thirteeners just in route, just while you were doing the bigger project. Yeah, that might be a function of there's not a lot of competition for those ones. Uh, so Justin Simone did the Colorado hundred highest, but he was biking in between every all all the peaks, so he had the the FKT 
and I mean, still has a self-powered FKT, but I hadn't read of anyone just driving between all the peaks. So I'm sure maybe with more careful planning, that time could be tightened. But Wyoming, there was also, there were two people who had finished the whole list, uh, Sarah and Teresa. So there wasn't a whole lot of competition on those. So maybe, maybe like with more research, it could get, could get a more efficient, more efficient time. Well, 33 days, that's uh, for the Wyoming 13ers, 33 days. That's pretty good. Because uh, the, the like you said, the, the previous person, which is two days before you, Eli Boardman took forty four days. Yeah, he was he was doing only weekend trips though, so he had to go in and out a bunch of different times. And so I just I had carved out enough time I could just go in once into the winds and do one big loop. So so he definitely did more mileage and more elevation than me in the winds. I see. I see. You just because most of the uh, Wyoming 13ers, obviously, everyone knows about the Grand Teton, but it's an outlier. It's the only 13er over there. Almost everything else is in the Wind River range. So if you slog into the winds, you might as well get a lot done. But then you can't you can't carry all your food in. So you must have you must have left a food stash. How'd you work the food? Yeah, that we uh, we had a horse packer bring in our food for the first 15 miles to Island Lake. So that I think that was critical for uh, making it a more enjoyable trip because ha- carrying all that food in, we we budgeted three weeks of food to bring in, and so that was like forty pounds just for food for each of us, and then we had climbing gear, and that would have been kind of miserable hauling that all in. We would have probably had a double carry, but the horse packer that was great, and then from there we would we did have some really heavy carries. So I think on day three we had to haul all that, basically all the gear up a couple miles up the valley. And wow, that was really slow going. <laughs> it gets better every day though, as, as you eat more. <laughs> right. Motivation to eat more as if you didn't need it already. So speaking of which, how about gear, Eric? I, I don't often ask about gear, but this effort is so prodigious and doesn't appear you got sick or hurt or lost. So I want to kind of walk through your methods here to see what we all might learn. Um, I presume you were wearing a little heavier duty footwear than the normal because a lot of our people are using stout running shoes. Is that what you did or were you using boots? Uh, for the Wyoming for the Wyoming part, we we brought trail runners and some lightweight hiking boots. So my, my partner, Matt Lemke, and I, we thought a lot about gear. And if you're just doing a high, if we're doing a high mileage day, I would wear the trail runners, even if it's some off trail. But a lot of the peaks in Wyoming require climbing up steep snow fields on glaciers. And it's not very safe to be front pointing on that kind of terrain in trail runners with uh, crampons strapped on. And micro spikes wouldn't really, you can't get up that kind of steep snow in micro spikes. So we brought... The trail runners for the high mileage days, and then we would wear the the lightweight but stiffer hiking boots uh, with aluminum crampons for the snow. And so the rock climbing, we could also do that with our hiking boots because you can get an edge on the on the rock. There's a the boots are rigid enough. Right. Okay. And so all right, the aluminum crampons they're lighter than steel, but the problem is. There are some routes like the South Gully on Wilson that 
may uh, distance wise make sense to combine with other peaks, but it generally gets melted out pretty quick. So there'd be a lot of transitions between uh, steep snow and rock. So that would either be, you'd have to do the whole thing in crampons, which you need steel crampons for, or do a bunch of transitions with aluminum. So you don't walk on rock and aluminum crampons. And that didn't seem very safe to be doing on that route. So we ended up, so the choice of aluminum crampons meant we had to do some different routes, but it, but it allowed us to have lighter packs, which I think was pretty, pretty helpful. Well, that's interesting because I'm one of the early apostles of light and fast, but as it turns out, and Peter Backman is the first person to bring this up, steel crampons actually make a lot of sense. The Catula, of course, beat us out of Flagstaff, Arizona, the, which invented the microspike, also has an aluminum crampon, which I've used for a long time. But their steel version, I think, is an ounce and a half heavier, and yet it is dramatically more durable. If you touch rock with the aluminum, it's, you know, after 20 minutes, it's done. It's over. You throw it away. Well, the steel can keep going. So Peter has always felt that the steel Catula is better than the aluminum. Oh, I haven't, I haven't seen that one. I should look into that. I mean, I have an ice axe that's a, it's aluminum, but just has a steel on the tip, on the, uh, the pick and the tip. So maybe they could do something with that with crampons. Is that the camp? Uh, yeah, I have the maroon camp one. Yep. Camp does really well. Oh, this was, oh, well, this is another gear choice. So I decided not to bring that ice axe. I instead brought a whippet because the snow wasn't technical enough that I thought an ice axe would be required and a whippet i was going to bring two hiking poles anyway and so a whippet just adds the weight of the of the top of the ice axe just the head so you have the, the pick and so that was always- i don't know what a whippet is what's a whippet oh it's uh pretty popular with backcountry skiers so it's a, basically a hiking pole with an ice axe head so you can ski down but you're ready to self-rest if you need to and you have two hiking poles but i use it a lot for like fast and light mountaineering because i want the hiking poles, but I also want to be able to self-rest and stick a uh, ice axe dagger in. And so, right. and you can take off a bottom part of the whippet and put in a little steel point. So it's, it looks exactly like an ice axe. Okay. I, who makes the whippet? Uh, Black Diamond makes the one I have. Gravel also makes one. So I thought that was totally okay. efficient for, uh, yeah. for Wyoming, for all the, all these peaks. Indeed. Okay. Well, moving that's good information. Moving right along for that length of time, you're doing dehydrated food. Yeah. I'm mostly, I mostly ate couscous for dinner almost every night. So that's that I found is my favorite food. If you need to be concerned with stuffing gear in like an ursac or a bear can, because it's very compact and somehow I don't get tired of it. So I've done one expedition in Northwest Territories. It was like a seven-week expedition. I think I ate couscous almost every night for dinner. So I I don't really get tired of it. You are particularly suited to this activity. (laughs) Maybe my uh, food standards are not very high. (laughs) Well, Flying Brian Robertson, the first person to do the calendar Triple Crown, the Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, and Continental Divide Trail in one calendar year. When we met him during his project, he had three meals that he was alternating between, Hmm. just three. And part of that wasn't being monk-like, although I sort of had that impression as well, but efficiency. 
So if you're not thinking about it, you save a lot of time. Yeah, if there's a lot of, if you're going to be out for a lot of days, it, uh, I like to not have to worry too much about food. So if, if I can have the same dinner every night, then I don't have to, don't have to think about it too much. What other tips, Eric? Uh, snacks or clever things that none of us have thought about? Uh, for food, for breakfast, I always have cereal and powdered milk. Um, I like to buy, for dinner, I like to, if I'm on a big trip, I like to buy a big bag of dehydrated uh, or uh, freeze-dried vegetables you can get on Amazon, like five or ten pounds. And so dump that in dinner every night. I'm also pretty big on cheese. I'll bring like five times as much cheese as any of my partners would. And so I put a lot of that in dinner and eat that all day. Nine calories per gram compared with four calories per gram of carbohydrate or protein. I don't know if there's any other interesting food. I always like to eat the gummy fruits on every summit. (laughs) Okay. All right. Again, back to navigation. So you mentioned Colorado, but if you're out there in Wyoming or Montana trying to find just the base and so forth, are you still using Peak Bagger and just looking at the topos and finding your way by looking at the map on the phone? Yeah, I usually just pull up the quad on the Peak Bagger app and then use that for navigation. Okay. And you don't you don't use uh, you know, Cal Topo or something in advance to plug in a route map the route yourself and then follow it you just look on the topo on the fly yeah if i'm doing a trip where i actually spend a lot of time planning then cal topo is probably the best resource but this this trip i mean if i had done more planning i would have probably used cal topo but this one i was mainly using the just pulling up the quads on peak beggar wow you're a good map reader and very good eyesight if you can look at that on your phone yeah the quads the one thing to keep in mind is the trails are not always they're often approximate in the remote locations. So you might not be. Okay. And you must've carried battery backup, you know, an Ankar charger or something of that sort. Uh, yeah, we carried a goal zero solar charger and then two small, uh, small batteries, like worth a phone charge each. So we would, we try to leave the, leave the solar panel out while we're climbing mountains. Gotcha. And then the uh, backup battery. The backup battery, in terms of power per weight, is by far the best way to go. Yeah, it seems like a spectrum for... um, There's some sweet spot in trip where it makes sense to just take a couple backup batteries. But then once you get, I don't know, maybe more than a week, then it makes it's lighter just to bring the solar panel and maybe a a small battery or two. Okay. Well, Eric, this is... uh, Stunning. And you're so low key. You're so matter of fact, uh, 432,000 vertical feet in this route. And you're kind of like, yeah, just pulled it up on the app, followed the topos. I guess that's how it goes. Any other tips or thoughts that people might be, might find helpful? Uh, so one thing that surprised me a lot was the afternoon thunderstorms. So we don't really have those in the Cascades what I'm used to. You can, it's okay if you summit at 2 p.m. or 4 p.m. You don't really have to worry about that. So that was kind of new to me coming down to Colorado. And the first couple of days, I was just climbing like I would in the Cascades, just start at a reasonable hour, hike 
all day until you're finished. And then I think it was like day four, I was on Yale and then it just started thundering while I was on the top at like 1 p.m. And so after that, I got really careful about afternoon thunderstorms. So then I would shift my schedule uh, to try to be really early in the morning to try to not be on the summit after then. Right. That is so natural to us that we don't even think about that. I, I wouldn't even thought to ask you that question because if you live in Colorado or Wyoming, that's assumed you're done by 2 p.m. Yeah. So, I, so the last week in Colorado, so I had scheduled the horse packer on the certain day to bring my gear into Wyoming. And it was looking like I wasn't going to finish the peaks in time. And so the thunderstorms, if this were in the Cascades, I would just kind of push through and do them all in one big push. But that's I, that's not really as easy when you have the afternoon thunderstorm constraint. So then I figured the only way, the most efficient thing to do would be to be sleeping while it's dangerous in the mountains. So I ended up shifting my schedule so I would be asleep from like 2 to 4 p.m., like two hours a day when it was dangerous in the mountains. And then come evening, I would just start hiking and hike all the way through until like the next day afternoon. So that was about as efficient as possible. And that's probably the only way I squeezed him in before the the horse packer schedule. So I so I just barely met that for for Wyoming. You had a very good headlamp as well. Yeah, that's one thing. That's one thing in Colorado. The uh it's a little bit easier to do trips off trail at night because there's so many trips. because or it's a little bit easier to do peaks. No, excuse me. Uh, in Colorado, it's a little bit easier to do trips through the night because there is so much information on all the peaks and because there are trails up to the, a lot of the summits. So it was it was not too bad doing those at night versus, versus uh, Wyoming and Montana. It would be very difficult to do those mountains at night because it's so much off trail, so not as much information about the peaks. Very difficult, uh, more complex navigating. Right. Gotcha. I can see that. Well, Eric, as I often do, I have to ask you, what is next? Um, my big goal is country high points whenever whenever uh, international travel uh, gets, gets safe again. So I've got plenty of those left to do. Back to Africa? Yeah, I've got a lot in Africa. I mean, my, my big goal, the, the trip I was going to do this summer is hitting some 7,000-meter peaks in uh Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. So those are some of the crux country high points. So maybe next summer, that'll be a good, that'll work out. Okay. Wow. We'll stay in touch. And again, your website where people can follow your progress will be listed in the show notes. Well, that's what's next for you. I'll give listeners a quick heads up about what's next on the podcast. And that's next week. We're going to be speaking with Alyssa Godeski and Sarah Keys on their Adirondack 46ers hike. This was kind of interesting because the two ladies started at the same time, but from different places. Do you see what I mean? So it was kind of like a virtual race in the Adirondack Mountains, sort of. But we'll speak with both of them. And then uh, here's a fun heads up on October 9th. We will speak with Matt Hart 
who, the author of a new book called Win at All Costs. This is intense. This is documenting the rise and the fall of Alberto Salazar and the Nike Oregon Project. The book is coming out on October 6th, and the podcast is being released on October 9th. So you can get the scoop by listening here. And we've already recorded the podcast, but we can't talk about it. That's how contentious it is. Uh, so my lips are sealed until you hear this on October 9th. So stay tuned for that one. Matt did a great job. He did fantastic research. So it's a fantastic warning tale of kind of what not to do. So thanks for taking your time with us, Eric. And you're a fantastic tale of what to do. I mean, this is incredible. You got a lot done. I don't think you didn't sound like you got sick, injured, or lost. Uh, wow, is that right? Did you ever get sick, injured, or lost? I should ask you that directly. Uh, I was pretty lucky. I never, I never got any injuries. I was kind of worried about overuse injuries. I mean, the only issue I had one night, I was a little bit worried about hypothermia. I was in a bivy sack above treeline in Montana, and I thought I had these weathers forecasts figured out like okay it's only going to thunderstorm in the afternoon the nights are always clear but this one it wasn't and it snowed and rained and thunderstormed like all night and my the biggest boulder i could find only covered half of me and it was sloping down so i was getting soaked all night so i was a little worried about hypothermia there but uh i got through the night and then everything worked out okay after that but no sickness or injury Okay, so another option. Another option for you, Eric, is start a professional guiding service. I think people would want to be part of that action. No sickness, no injury, and never getting lost. And traveling around the world, summiting 122 country high points and FKTs in the United States in your spare time. Congratulations, Eric. Job well done. We appreciate this. Thanks. Thanks for having me.